the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, here we are at Fighter Command again. Uh, I'm privileged today. I'm going to be talking to two people, two very special people in terms of their relationship with each other. Wing Commander retired Peter Ring, AM, AFC. Now, Peter was an Air Force fighter pilot and fighter combat instructor flying mainly F-86 Sabres and Mirage 3s. In the 1960s, he was deployed to Bon Thailand and the Malaysian confrontation. He was posted as commanding officer of five squadron operating Hueys for four years, including deployment to the United Nations Emergency Force in the Sinai Desert. Resigning in 1981, he became a sheep farmer. He branched out to provide privately funded change programs for youth. The programs were conducted using an experimental approach that improved feet on the ground self-leadership. Currently, Peter is Secretary of the Air Force Association New South Wales, a board member of Wings Magazine, and a committee member of Fighter Squadron's branch Air Force Association New South Wales. My second guest is Colin Tomlinson. Now, Colin was a private pilot from 1969 to 1974 and then joined the Fleet Air Arm flying Mackie and A4G Skyhawks. He became a qualified flying instructor and instrument rating examiner. In 1979, he ejected from a Skyhawk and landed in rough country near Braidwood, New South Wales. This is where he met Peter Ring. In 1983, after the fleet air arm disbanded its fighters as a result of decommissioning its aircraft carrier, he joined the RAAF and trained on Mirage 3s. However, as his back was damaged during his ejection, he discontinued and went on to flying caribous. In 1986, he joined Qantas flying Boeing 747-23400 series. And both gentlemen are with me now. Peter Ring, Ringo, how are you, sir? Very well, thank you. Colin, it's good to have you here. Good morning. You two are pretty good buddies, aren't you, in, in a lot of ways? Well, we are now. We are. And I haven't seen uh, Peter for 41 years, and it's good to see him again. Yeah, all right. Well, let's just talk to both of you about your respective careers before we get on to how you two met. Peter... You joined in 1961. Now, it's been my custom to ask everybody, why did you join? Well, I was a, a loss of what to do when I was at the high school one day, and this huge noise came from somewhere, and, it, and I was a bit, it was a bit scary, actually, and next minute this twin-tailed airplane went straight over my head, very, very low. It was a vampire. And as I saw it disappear, I went, that's for me. That's how I got. That's to want to be how a you got to be a pilot. You saw a vampire. I used to when is it when I was a little boy had one of those dinky toys, a vampire, yep. and it was one of my favourite toys. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a bit different. Now you uh, in Williamtown in Malaya in Ubon, you flew sabers. What was that like? Flying sabers in different parts of the world. Well, from a boy, uh, a boy who came from a uh, cattle and um, dairy country, to actually sit in a saber, say flying to Darwin during Indonesian confrontation, was very monumental in that you couldn't believe you were on a dairy farm one day and sitting behind the controls of a sabre only two years later 
the Sabre to me was a, a beautiful aeroplane to fly, a fighter pilot's aeroplane. Um, you go up on the canopy in flight if you want to, don't let your scarf fly in the breeze, which was pretty good. Um, had good all-round vision, plenty of power, more power than the, uh, than the American models. Uh, probably 50% more power, so it was a lovely aeroplane, a pilot's aeroplane. Was that extra power developed specifically for Australia? I mean, It was, yes. It had a Rolls-Royce engine in it, and it uh, was developed to put in the Australian Sabre. Why was it different? Why did Australia well, want wanted that? A, they wanted higher performance aircraft, and the uh, American F-86 was too low performance, so they decided they could uh, modify it to fit in a much larger engine. Hmm. As a former RAAF pilot, uh, in general public, in classes, we know a lot about World War I, we know a lot about World War II, we know a lot about Vietnam. Not so much about Korea, but certainly more than the Malaysian emergency, the Malaya emergency, the Indonesian confrontation, the fact of communism potentially in Thailand. That part of history, you actually lived through it. What, what is your feeling or memory or understanding of that era when Australian Defence Forces were involved overseas. Love that sound. Peter. It actually was an experience you could hardly believe because um, you're involved in a national operation and uh, to be flying in uh, Thailand, for example, uh, defending Thailand against any incursions from Vietnam, you felt pretty important and you had something important to do. And the same thing with the Indonesian confrontation was uh, there were MiGs heading towards uh, Butterworth, the Air Force Base mm. on the east coast of Malaysia. Uh, sorry, on the west coast. Um, I never did get to see one, but we w were launched into the air on occasions and the MiGs always disappeared. But you always felt like I have something significant to do. Mm. And it was quite, um, quite an exhilarating experience. It almost seems as though if the MiGs disappeared that they really didn't want to engage with the Sabres. That's the suggestion no, I get. they didn't. They were baiting us to see whether we had anyone that come out and um, intercept them. Your friend here is Colin, Colin Tomlinson. Now, a fascinating comment that, Colin, you actually joined the Army first. Why? No, no not that's the not Army. True. Not correct. Oh, no, that's... that's no, well, only the Air Force and the Navy. Fleet Air Arm first. Yeah, and why did you join? Okay, similar to Peter, I guess. I was off the farm. Yep. Um, and always wanted to fly aeroplanes. And we had um, fighter flying backgrounds, I guess, in the Second World War. Um, my mother's cousin was a P-40 pilot, and he was actually shot down in Sicily, um, unfortunately. Her brother... Um, was killed in the Sunderland in just off Scotland, coming back from a mission um, in the Second World War, and he's buried up in Scotland. So it's in in the it's blood, in the blood in the blood I guess in the blood. Um, so I went to university. Um, I got a private pilot's license, and while I was at university, I used to take people flying out at Bankstown. Um, and it was the same time as conscription, and I missed out on conscription by one number. My birthday the birthday was the 27th, lottery, yeah. <laughs> and the 28th got pulled out, and uh, so I stayed at university, completed my science degree, and 
always wanting to fly. Where did I want to fly? Off an aircraft carrier. So I applied for the Navy and the Air Force at the same time, and I was selected in into the fleet the air arm. Into the Navy. Into the Navy. Into the, so the RAN's fleet. If the RAF had have selected me, I would have, gone, have gone there, there as well. So did you actually get to fly off an aircraft carrier? I certainly did. I flew off the old rust bucket, the old Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, before they got rid of us. Um, there are only three Majestic class carriers in the world. The smallest carrier in the world. Uh, we had one, the Indians had one, and the Argentinians had one. The Argentinians never took theirs out in the Falklands War. The Indians used to take it out occasionally and lose an aeroplane and then go back into dock. <laughs> but we used ours as a, an operational carrier. And even though she was getting a bit long in the tooth, um, it was pretty hot living on it in the tropics. Um, no, it was all good fun, all good young man sport. I can imagine. Colin, you talked, as I have done, talked to fighter pilots and you're on the ground, you take off from on the ground, you land on the ground. There's not a lot of ground on an aircraft carrier, particularly the Melbourne. What water, was the water, steel, steel, water, water. Yeah. <laughs> What's the training like in preparing you for that kind of exercise? Well, you do it all at, we did it all at Albatross, of course, and we had a dummy deck. Um, and we did all the approaches as if you would be making the approach onto a carrier. The carrier was only 700 feet long, the landing area was 400 feet, angled deck, and the pull-up in the wires was about 180 feet, so a little bit different to uh, operating off a land base. I can imagine, but what about the pitch But you do a lot of training day and night um, for that, and then you go out and you, you do your, your qualifications. You had to do six arrests and six catapult shots before you were qualified. But then comes the very first one. What was that like, do you remember? Absolutely amazing. Um, the first uh, arrest you know, pulled you up pretty quickly. You had about a three and a half G pull up in the wires. Um, absolutely amazing. And of course, you're concentrating so much. Uh, meatball lineup angle of attack. Meatball lineup angle of attack. All the way down, no flare, bang. And you're on the deck. You don't have any time to think about it. The um, arrest gear is taken out of the, the hook and you taxi up to the catapult. You line up on the catapult, they strap you up, you do your checks, salute the flight deck officer and bang, away you go. Four and a half G launch on the, on the uh, training sessions, but when we were operating Normally, we'd be launching with about a six and a half G launch because we had bombs and bullets. Of and course, fuel of course. So forth. But absolutely fantastic. Both the arrest and the catapult shot was amazing. The training, uh, I mean, I think of aeroplanes and I think of RAAF, and I know the Navy had, and overseas does still have, pilots who are a part of their Navy. Who does the training? And, is it, and, and if it's done by different organisations, wasn't taking off from an aircraft carrier. If it's done by different organisations, who does the training? All that training was combined with the, the Navy and the Air Force. Our tummies are rumbling. It's fantastic. What a great sound. Yeah, once you get back into a plane, doesn't it? Anyway, it's it done by... It certainly does. Now, all the training was... Um, uh, down by the Air Force and the Navy combined down, down at Point Cook and uh, at Pierce. 
Uh, and same with the, na the Army, they, they were down at Point Cook as so, well. But the, RAA, the base of training initiates with the RAAF, is that absolutely, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. But it was combined Navy and Air Force, yeah, sure. primarily Air sure. Force. And how do they work together? Oh, it's, it's symbolic, it, you know, it's perfect. Uh, they work very, very well together. A lot of my time in the Navy was with the Air Force and uh, on exercises and I instructed over at Pierce for okay. two years. I want to come back to your career in just a moment, Colin, but Peter, I think, uh, what year were you out in a helicopter? A Huey, was, it, was it a Huey? What were you out in? Out in a Huey in 1979. 1979. So wh why did you go out? D did you have to do a check ride? Was that, yes, what's yes. a check ride? Well, you come back from Christmas leave, been off flying for a month, they just want to make sure you can refresh your skills before you um, start your flying routine again. And you were up in a Huey with one other person? Well, up with a Czech captain who was taking me out. And who had the senior rank in that helicopter? Well, I had the senior rank. I was the commanding officer. But in the aircraft, that is neither here nor there. The Czech captain is the commander of the aircraft, and you are the person that's being checked. So you'll act as the captain, but if anything needs to... Critical decisions need to be made, it's left with the Czech captain. Yeah. I want to come back little bit later to the fact that you were the commanding officer because that has relevance Does. very very shortly so you're in the helicopter you're doing a check ride where were you and what was going on before you heard anything happen well we had it out in the training area and the check captain I was with and, he, and I were very convivial so we out in the training area having a pretty good time and enjoying ourselves and we wandered further and further and further east as you might to get different terrain and different experiences yep. and we're sitting there thinking about coming back to base this is about an hour later. About an hour later. And then on your radio, there's, uh, the, the, you're mon constant, constantly monitoring the um, distress frequency. And we heard a discussion between two A4 pilots. About All right. Well, let's just pause there. Colin, you're <laughs> one of those pilots having a discussion. Who are you? You're in a Skyhawk. Firstly, what's the Skyhawk like? Good plane? It's a great little aeroplane. Um, single seat, fighter bomber. Uh, had everything going for it. It was very manoeuvrable and uh, a great little aeroplane for us to operate off a very small aircraft. Okay, so you and someone else are up in the air my doing... My boss, actually, my um, commanding officer and I were on a, an ACM and an air refuelling sortie we right. launched and um, we did some air refuelling. Another um, tanker, Skyhawk, with a tanker. Um, we went out and met him. We did a couple of plugs at 20,000 feet and then a couple of dry plugs down at um, 10,000 feet for practice. He'd actually had a transmitter failure um, and we met him at the predetermined um, location. We did our uh, re air refuelling practice mm -hmm. and then um, the CO uh, organised his return to base to do a TACAN approach and we set up to do our um, ACM, our combat, air combat manoeuvring. So we. Peter, were you listening to that conversation going on? No, we weren't. What, what the, uh, that conversation would have been on a different frequency. They only go to the distress frequency when something's wrong. Okay, so let's just go back to Colin with the distress frequency. Okay, How did that so what happened then was that um, we, we had a couple of um, splits and, and on my second split, we sighted each other and we were up at about um, 28, 30,000 feet. Mm. Going around about 500 
knots, I guess, yep. um, and going through our manoeuvres, and all of a sudden my aeroplane gave an almighty bang and shuddered. Um, I called the fight off and uh, reduced the thrust of the, the engine, and it was like um, when I reduced, when I increased the thrust of the engine, it was like riding down a cobblestone road, oh. and the engine was rumbling and banging at about 83%, so pulled the power off again. Um, all happened very, very quickly. Um, I ran through a couple of uh, fueling checks and so forth, but not much. It just happened so quickly. The oil um, started to uh, go berserk, and the oil light came on, which meant it was less than 20% oil. Mm. Um, and immediately after that, uh, the right rudder pedal went twang, and the uh, firelight came on. As the boss was rejoining me, he could see smoke coming out the back and uh, flames and, and, and he said big black chunks. They looked like coffee cups coming out the back of the aeroplane. So, so the he said- The plane was disintegrating. It was disintegrating. It took a minute and a half, a minute to, uh, to fall apart. And uh, he said at the same time, um, as he approached, you could see the, the smoke. Um, he said, prepare to eject. And uh, as he got closer and closer, he said, you're on fire, eject, eject. He said it three times. I heard him once. I heard him say, you're on fire, eject. My, my radio was gone at that stage. Um, all I had time to do was raise the electric seat to make my legs flush with the seat. Yep. So I didn't do any damage uh, on the ejection. And uh, I, I hit the, the tit and said, uh, I'm ejecting. Nothing came out. And uh, I reached for the blind, got the blind down to about eye level, and that was the only time I had any time to think about anything, and I just thought, I hope like hell this thing works. Hmm. And bang, I was gone. So I'm up in, in a chute at uh, 13,500 feet, and it took 11.5 minutes to get down through cloud. It was, was eight-eighths cloud underneath me, it was a solid cloud base of about three to 7,000 feet. I was in bright sunshine, lovely, hanging up there. Oh, just a great day. <laughs> great day. And then he came past. I gave him a thumbs up because so I wiggled my arms and legs and so forth. And okay. He came past. I gave him a thumbs up. And that's when Pete would have heard okay. him on the radio. He gave it a, a mayday call on guard frequency. He's now in descent. You hear the the call, what's your immediate or your captain's immediate response? Not only was it a mayday call, but then he gave the position of the ejection. So I quickly plotted the position on the map and I said to the captain, my God, we're just about underneath him. And uh, that's when we started to really think seriously about... He could come down this, on top of you. This guy was going to come down on top, somewhere near us. And I thought, I said, your biography uh, came down through the road. That had ruined his day and ours. But... Uh, we had a look. We, had, we looked outside. The weather was quite awful where we were. He was in the clear blue skies up there enjoying the sunshine. Well, you must have been about an hour away or thereabouts. No, we were uh, probably five to ten minutes from where he landed. From where he landed. Okay. But the weather was lousy. It was in amongst the hills. It was in amongst rainforest. It was um, the cloud was on the hills. We were up a valley. <clears throat> um, luckily, in a chopper because you can stop and turn around, and go back if everything turns to crap. Sure. Um, and then we're still scratching our heads wondering 
<coughs> we should hear his distress beacon. And sure enough, not long after thinking that, we heard the beep on the emergency frequency. However, didn't the chopper come to a fork and you had well, to decide to go left or go right? That's true. We, we, we flew to where we thought he might be according to the position where he ejected and allowing for this and allowing for that. And it was coming on, on dark, the rain was coming in and um, we got to a fork and we had to make a decision to go left or right. So we decided left for some strange reason and the... It was the right decision. The right decision. And uh, it wasn't long after we heard um, Cole call us on his emergency radio and he fired a flare. And he, he can tell you the bit about what he heard from the ground, but we were astonished because all of a sudden right there in front of us was a parachute and a bloke. <sighs> and that was like so far away from what we went out to do. We went out to practice, me practice manoeuvres and the check captain make sure I was proficient yeah. and here we are parking over the top of a bloke. Uh, uh, I guess in the end you end up passing that that crew, <laughs> crew test. Cole, what was your first hearing of, of what was coming? Well, just coming back a little bit, coming down in the chute, it, as I said, it took 11 and a half minutes yep. and uh, I'd banged myself up a bit and there's a bit of blood coming out and so forth and adrenaline doesn't start to kick in for about five minutes and then once it started, you know, the adrenaline's running for five minutes and then once it's it goes all the soreness, all the pain, and that was happening. So um, here I am dangling under this military chute that kept oscillating, and you've got to put your arms up, pull down on the risers to spill a bit of the air out. Yep. And I was getting a bit nauseous and things. All I wanted to do was get down and get down through this cloud. And then when I got into the cloud, it engulfed me, and it felt really, really nice. And I'm looking down through my feet. And then all of a sudden, um, I'd, I'd also dropped the dinghy pack to one side because my back was really, really hurting. Oh. And, uh, and I needed to retain the dinghy pack, obviously, if I it was over water, because I didn't know where... We, our, our area covered a lot of area, 200 miles, and I didn't sure. know whether I was over water or, or whether I was over land. Yep. So I needed the dinghy pack for the water, and I needed the dinghy pack on my backside to protect it going through trees. And I dropped it and it was dangling down and I was looking down through my feet and all of a sudden I saw trees coming up. And this was about 500 feet above the, oh. the trees. So I had to kick the dinghy pack back up and click it into place just as um, I was drifting just across the trees and I saw a tiny little area, probably 20 foot round, not even that, because they were 120 foot high trees. Mm. It was just total trees. So I pulled down on one side of the risers to try and stop the drift and, and go for that. But it all happened too quickly. It was all 30 seconds worth of getting the dinghy pack up and then wacko smack into the top of the trees. So I go smack, smack, smack down through the trees and I'm looking up at the parachute and I think, oh, gee, I'm going to get caught up in here. And we didn't have a tree escape kit as we did on the Mirage. The A4 kit, we didn't have a tree escape kit and I thought, oh, I'm going to get stuck up here. And Luckily, it went crash, crash, crash through the trees and then looked up and the chute was ripping to shreds. Mm. And I thought, God, it's going to rip to shreds and I'm going to fall another 60 feet and go smack out. But luckily, foliage just broke my fall and um, I ended up resting in a great big fern on the, on the floor. And I sort of looked around and I couldn't see more than about 30 metres, 40 metres um, thick heavy trees that was drizzling and, and, and as I looked up before I hit the trees um, I was in a valley 
and the, the mountains were covered with cloud. Mm. So it was all happening in very, very quickly at that stage. Uh, so here I am on the deck and I pull the gear off and drag myself over. I turn the Saabi on to um, talk to the boss. Couldn't get hold of him. And I thought, oh, it's going to take at least 30 minutes for the choppers to reach me from Nara. And um, I thought, oh, i better save the battery. So I switched the battery off and dragged myself over to a bit of a log, got the gear off, got the survival equipment out ready to to use and, and this is all in the space of about 10 minutes 15 minutes and then i couldn't believe my ears i heard this magic <laughs> walk 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 <laughs> of a uh, an iroquois coming i could not believe it how in the hell did they get there so quickly <laughs> and uh, so i switched on the sabi quickly and that's when pete probably got the um the ping and i think he got me about four miles as he came around the the mountain so I fired a pen gun flare up through the, the foliage, penetration yep. flare up through the uh, foliage, fired another one, fired the third one, and I heard Pete say, or, or Ron say, um, got your flare, can you fire another one? So I fired another one, and they homed in on the beacon and on that flare. Couldn't see me, they could only see the chute, it was hung up, so I had to talk them into where I was. Um, in relation to the shoot, so it was a bit of banter going on between the two of us. And of course, Peter, you can't land because there's no area for you to land. True. Uh, and and you have to use a, a winch, but you don't have a crewy to use the winch. Uh, tell us about that dilemma. We knew we were going to pull him up. Put it that oh, way. Of course. That was, that was the ultimate. That was already assumed. But the thing was, I. Um, the check captain said, I can operate the winch well enough because he'd been on Charles a long time. I said, well, you need to go down the back and operate the winch. And I said, but you can't leave me up here by myself because I'm not qualified. He said, oh, you're qualified. <laughs> so, so he, he re-qualified me at that instant. And as he, as he was about to leave, he said, oh, by the way, he said, you can't fly this aircraft um, from, without two pilots in the front if someone's winching a person from the outside that gets out of balance. He said, and the only way we can do it is get the commanding officer's approval. I said, okay. I'm You're the commanding, commanding officer. officer. I approve it. <laughs> so, so Ron got out of the seat, went down the back and uh, to, the, to the winch. Of course, Cole didn't know all this was going on in the cockpit. Um, and uh, I'll let Cole tell the story from there on in because uh, I was up the front hovering very, very steadily and <coughs> Mitchell was down the back working his butt off. Yeah, I, I've just got to mention Ron Mitchell was yeah. the captain of that of that yeah. Huey, so I didn't actually mention Ron at the start, and he, yeah, he did play a very important part too. So yeah. back to you, Colin. The, you don't know what's going on in the chopper, but you can see the, or hear the chopper. What happens then? Thank goodness Peter was in the uh, in the chopper because yeah. he did a marvellous job, and, and Ron. Um, okay, so here I am on my log, and here's this magic sound of a uh, halo above me, and the trees are going all over the place you know, with the downdrafts. And um, down came this hook and ball. Now, we know that the trees ended up about 120 feet high because I believe that the uh, the wire was only good for about 110 feet or 120 feet or something like that because it, it was um, US. And I heard this later. I think they're normally 160 feet or something. Anyway, it stopped about two feet above my head. Oh. 
And I thought, God, you know, I'm pretty painful by that stage. I couldn't move my head for you know, more than two inches for about two weeks and mm. all the aches and pains and things. So I got off as much gear as I could and I jumped up and grabbed this thing, the, the ball bit, and the hook, and we had a D-ring on our equipment, mm-hmm. and which uh, is part of the May West and the uh, torso harness uh, equipment. And I pulled myself up and clicked on the the, the hook of the, the ball onto the D-ring, and said, then got on the radio and said, get the hell out, get me the hell out of here, or words to that yeah, effect. Words to that effect, yeah. <laughs> and so they pulled me up through the trees, and I, I just felt so elated. I felt fantastic even bashing my way up through the foliage and then uh, to the base of the chopper and then into the chopper and then I just, I think I just flaked inside the chopper and looked over at Pete, looked up at, at, at Ron and just gave him a thumbs up because we couldn't talk yeah. uh, and I just gave Pete a thumbs up and I had the biggest smile on my face I think. <laughs> yeah, now a little further development, a little bit of competition between the RAN and the RAAF, you get a call from an RAN helicopter, we've got a doctor on board, we want him on our helicopter and the doctor can look after him. Now, you didn't necessarily want that to happen. What happened then? Well, we obviously wanted to deliver a Navy pilot back to a Navy base in an Air Force helicopter. <coughs> so, uh, but it was logical too. We said, uh, it's better the patient stays sitting on our seat, send the doctor over. <coughs> so we landed in an opening in a clearing the uh, doctor came racing over from the RAN helicopter and jumped on board, and uh, we continued into the Navy base. Yeah, but that little clearing actually was <laughs> Brush Island, and the, these guys did a marvellous job. They had to go um, to the coast because they couldn't get through. The weather was not yep, good. Yep. Ended up going through the coast just to the north of Batemans Bay and then over the coast onto Brush Island, and that's where the Navy chopper met us. And okay. uh, the doctor came over and... Looked after Jumped you. in, looked after me, and then we flew up in formation up the coast, getting lower and lower and lower because of the, the weather. It was raining and it was pretty terrible. I think by the time we got there, it was only about a 100-foot cloud base, and I think you guys were very tempted to land on the beach before getting me around uh, in St George's sure. Basin and around yep. the head there and into, into hospital. But uh, luckily, it all worked. Yeah. Didn't you say to Ron, uh, Peter when the request was made by the RAN, bugger that, we're taking him here. I, I didn't, but I won't admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the thing that I do want to ask, um, the whole incident talks about, to me anyway, a, a deviation from promulgated orders. Dif, dif, I think we've spoken to a former Air Vice Marshal who talked about the uniqueness of the Australian RAAF person and how they're individuals. Now, you had specific rules in terms of the winch, in terms of how many people there had to be at the cockpit. Bugger that. What does that say about the RAAF and, and its training? Well, maybe it's like the Air Vice Marshal you, you're uh, talking about said, we use our initiative and we will break, not break rules, we will we'll change a plan um, if we have to, to save a life or to achieve a very, very important mission. And we're willing to use our initiative a lot of the other air forces in the world, um, they're taught yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, whereas the culture of the RAAF is to, uh, is to use your initiative and get the job done, provided you're staying within basic safety rules mm. and, and, doing, and, and flying with air, good airmanship. 
I think I read in a Wings magazine, or I read somewhere, you've said th that there is a problem, um, a problem of responsibility while withholding authority but demanding accountability. What does that mean? On a lot of occasions, you argument delegating the job, but you're not delegated the decision-making, uh, and sufficient decision-making to change the decisions as the situation um, demands. And if you're not delegated that, you can't get the job done. And that's what happens a lot these days, because a lot of leaders do not want their delegates embarrassing them with bad decisions. Yep. So they tell, it, tell them, you must get the job done because it makes me look good, but you can't challenge any of the rules that I've set for you to get the job done. Hmm. So people get into a dilemma. I want to go back to Colin. You recover. You've ejected, you're rescued, you recover, but you have a back problem. And what did that do to your career? How did it change? Um, I had to manage it. Um, if truth was known um, I was in pretty much pain for 40 years mm. and have been and I've just had six weeks in hospital and had a double fusion uh, on my spine um, which has done the trick it's it's taken all the shooting pains that have been down my legs for 40 years mm. away however I've got some uh, screws and rods and things in my back that the body's got to get used to and it's still pretty painful and I believe that'll be maybe 18 months worth. So if you go through an airport now you have the alarm. I've got a little car okay. and it says this man has shrapnel in his yeah. <laughs> But it did cause you to leave the Mirage and go into the Caribous, is that right? Yes, yeah that's true and I ended up instructing on the Caribou for a couple of years before I went into Qantas. So um, that it was all, all good. Um, you know, I was in pain for most of it, and, and with Qantas, I was able to get up out of the seat every couple of hours and, you know, walk around. And as a pilot? As a pilot. Yep. Now, I've had 50 years of, of great flying, um, and... When did you retire from Qantas? Six years ago. Six years ago. Flying a 747 as opposed to flying a Caribou or a Mirage or whatever, what's, what's that like? They're, 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 a, they're a lovely, lovely aeroplane um, to fly. However, the boy's still in my heart, you know, <laughs> the fighter flying. What, take, you take wanted to take on a fella. And, and I tell you, the Navy flying was the best. Really? Off, off the aircraft. Category. The aircraft. Well, that was your boyhood dream, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, we'll go back. Go, Peter. Carl's got one more role to play, which I haven't yet described, but... <clears throat> the uh, Navy, we stayed the night at the Navy base and of course the mess was already closed and we couldn't get any dinner so we went to town and we were at a restaurant and uh, the guy, the owner recognised us as maybe being out of town so he started to sit down and have a chat. So we told him what we just did. He said, what was the, name, what was the pilot's name? I said, Cole Tomlinson. He said, he's my mate. So we said, good, book this dinner up. <laughs> So I got a message about two days later, maybe three, I forget, from Cole back in my office at Fairburn saying, pleasure to shout your dinner. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, very, yeah. very pleased too. And I, you know, overall, I think I was a very lucky boy that day. Yeah, you certainly were. And I were. was very fortunate to have Pete as the CEO of the squadron to be on board. Yeah, but 
Colin, what it again demonstrates, as I've noticed of each person I've spoken to, it, it, it indicates to me that the training in the Australian Defence Force, whether it's Army, Navy or Air Force, is so good that those kinds of decisions can be made and people like you are alive because of the training and because of the personnel. Absolutely. It's second to none, the training uh, in Australia. That's fantastic. Yeah. I've got to ask um, you one last question, Peter. Um, you were involved in the UN Emergency Force, which had you in Egypt and Israel, I think in the late 70s, 79. Well, what was that? What did you do there? We were patrolling the Sinai Desert uh, between the Arabs and the Israelis because the Arabs had a demarcation line, the Israelis on the other side of the desert had a de demarcation line, yep. and they were want to have a good go at each other in those days, so we were tasked with patrolling the lines to make sure they were behaving themselves, and, um, and that, was our, that, was, that was the mission every day. Um, and I suppose there was also posts out there manned by Finns, Swedes, Canadians, all sorts of mm. different nationalities, and we helped deliver personnel, personnel in and out of the out of their listening posts yep. because the whole Sinai, well not the whole Sinai, the border with uh, the Sinai Desert border with Egypt was just laced with mines, millions of mines. Mm. And um, it was too dangerous for people to move around generally on foot. But they tell me that the, uh, the Israeli Defence Forces particularly like the Australians because you used to turn up with a case of VB. Was that true? Well, it was a case of twoies. Oh, a case of twoies, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we had. It's a bit like I think Australians are high on camaraderie no matter who's in a nut, what nation the other uniform belongs to. Yep. We're high on camaraderie and yep. so we had a good camaraderie with the Israelis and... It was very enjoyable. Well, this camaraderie is developed between what was a Navy person and what was an RAAF person. You've come together. You're reunited today as a result of this interview, but you, it goes all the way back to the 70s, and one saved the other, and you are now both best friends. Absolutely. Thank you very much, both of you, for sharing what is a remarkable story. Pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Globally... The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.